Hey there, Helen. How are you? Hey, Ethan. I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, I'm doing okay too. So we are into the second week uh, mm. of this crisis unfolding in the Middle East. Uh, I think I think week one we were both. I mean, we hopped on we hopped on a Zoom right after yeah uh, right after the news broke on Saturday the the seventh. Uh, I think we were we were so paralyzed i guess by the grief mm -hmm. and we, we still are in so many ways um to really understand just how impactful this event could be now in week two we we know we're, we're starting to see the contours of this conflict yeah take shape um and so if week one was the acute angry grieving phase and we're still not quite out of it week two has been we've seen a, a global effort to try to wrap our arms around it and keep it right. from spreading. Um, right. So, so I think the theme of, of this episode will be something like, I guess we, we could call it the diplomatic blitz. Mm -hmm. um, but before we get to that, there are still events happening. So, so what happened on the ground this week? There are, I mean, there's so many events happening, Ethan. I will say just on that point, I think the first week was really truly shock, right? I think shock as more facts unfolded and we see what happened. And then this week is kind of when the grieving process of sort of acceptance, you know, I think we right. talk about the different stages of grieving. Uh, this is where I think a lot of people are, particularly folks in Israel and Palestine who are very much in the thick of it. Um, but to your point, you know, what's happened on the ground this week? So far, there's been no Israeli ground operations inside Gaza that we know of, although, you know, we're recording this on a Thursday afternoon in um, on the on the 19th of October. So right now there isn't uh, yeah. any operations happening. Uh, but that, there has been relentless. That said, we, we, there was a video earlier today on Thursday of Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant speaking to Israeli troops outside of Gaza saying, you'll soon be inside. That could be posturing. We, d we don't know exactly what the plan is, right. but um, right. we're, we're anticipating an offensive soon. No, I mean, they're very much literally quite at the gates, right? Um, but, you know, Ethan, we have seen, I think, relentless airstrikes continuing primarily in the northern Gaza Strip. Um, and Israel has now issued and well, had it issued an evacuation order from residents, uh, for residents of Gaza for that part of the territory and told them to move south towards the border with Egypt. Um, now, this, this really amounts to over a million people with nowhere to go. Coupled with the ongoing restrictions on like water and food and fuel, it's really just become such a humanitarian disaster that's waiting to happen and has already happened. Yeah. Um, of course, as you know, the big week, big news of this week, sorry, has been the explosion at the Al-Ali Hospital in Gaza City that Hamas's health ministry says killed over 400 people. Um, I don't know if you saw this unfold, but it was just kind of surreal seeing the conflicting reports that came yeah. out from that part of the world and international media outlets. But what we saw was global media outlets had initially followed Hamas's lead and identified Israel as a culprit behind this attack. And then Israel denied and said that they were not responsible, but that an errant rocket from a Gaza-based group called the Islamic Jihad, uh, which is tied to the Muslim Brotherhood, was to blame. And then U.S. intelligence has thus far, you know, from the U.S. Defense um, Department, agreed with the Israel's assessment. But I think the damage is already being done, right? The narrative is already being written yeah. from around the region. We're in this moment where truth is sort of immaterial. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I wrote something on Twitter, stupid, you know, whatever. I've been writing stuff on Twitter all week just trying to <laughs> express join in how on the quips. and yeah. join in, join in on the, the screaming into the, the abyss. Um, but I, I wrote something about, you know, God doesn't keep a scorecard on all, all this. 
Um, uh, yeah. The, there is no right. there is no grand moral arbiter uh, of who's mm-hmm. right and who's wrong. Uh, people have gone into their corners. They've assessed the evidence that they want to assess. Uh, the damage is done. So you know, mm-hmm. to your point, one side is uh, blaming Israel. The other side, mm-hmm. Israel and the U.S. are, are blaming uh, uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Uh, if we think that we're in a siloed media media ecosystem, Helen, in the U.S. between uh, the yeah. Fox News crowd and the MSNBC crowd, <laughs> right. the silos that exist between uh, Western media outlets and mm-hmm. and media outlets in the Arab world, these are these are just too th- these bridges are, are are too far to cross. Um, so yeah. so what happened? I mean, wh- what did we see? across the region in response to the hospital explosion? Yeah, I mean, of course, there were enormous protests, you know, in response to this horrific hospital explosion that went on around across the region, had protesters clashing with Palestinian security forces in the Palestinian capital of Ramallah and called for the removal of the Palestinian Authority president, Mahmoud Abbas. And then there were also riots and protests in Amman, in Jordan, in Istanbul, in Ankara and in Tunisia, where protesters actually, I think, just recently set fire to a centuries-old synagogue, which is pretty horrific. Um, And then, of course, there were more significant protests uh, in Beirut outside the U.S. Embassy, which I'm sure would have been very, very uh, triggering with uh, a lot of, you know, what happened in the U.S. Embassy there um, in in Lebanon earlier, a couple of decades ago. So, look, the region's unhappy. The region is uh, very much grieving a lot of the loss of of Palestinian lives um, over the last week. And in the decades prior, the years prior, this is a sort of a cumulative um, grief that we're yeah. seeing pouring out onto the streets. Yeah. So yeah, it's chaos. And to put to put the the tragedy at the hospital into perspective, and again, we're relying on figures here from from the Hamas-run Palestinian Health Ministry. So you know, mm-hmm. people will decide how credible that organization is. But if five hundred people, four hundred, I think the number was four hundred and seventy-one. If that many people were killed, it would be the deadliest attack on Palestinian people in the history of the conflict. So, right. you know, we're talking about the trauma that, that Israel has experienced uh, on, on October 7th, um, yeah. the deadliest day for Jews since the Holocaust. This would be the deadliest day for Palestinians, the deadliest single strike for Palestinians. So this event... Yeah. Uh, when it started, it seemed pretty clear that it could have some serious consequences. But Helen, uh, <laughs> uh, flying through the sky on Air Force One into this chaos. I mean, oh yeah, I mean, that's right. The timing, the timing could yeah. not have been worse uh, for an American president to arrive on the ground in Tel Aviv. Truly. But here comes President Biden. Truly. I mean, you could not script this, right? It seems like something out of the West Wing, but you actually can't script this. So yes, very poor timing. Um, Hospital blast, of course, happened on Tuesday night when Biden had arrived um, in Israel on the Wednesday morning. So really just arrived to sort of the aftermath of all this. Um, And, you know, initially the goal of his trip was really twofold. One was to show support for Israel and help it plan its next steps. And then two, and this is a big one, is to meet in Iran with other Arab leaders, you know, who are critical 
important to sort of resolving this conflict and getting a ceasefire or figuring out a path forward. So he had on his agenda President of Sisi of Egypt, President Abdullah of um, of, of Jordan, and then, oh, sorry, King Abdullah of Jordan, and then, of course, President Abbas of Palestine to develop plans to avoid the conflict spreading across the region. Uh, but, of course, even before he boarded um, Air Force One, the second part of that agenda was completely canned in respond to the um, in response to the hospital blast but you know I'll say that that that's a real shame um, because of course this is a real opportunity lost and an opportunity missed for um, the US to show some real shadow diplomacy there but the trip I think was still somewhat successful right and you can push back on this even if you feel but I think the Biden still convinced the Israelis to allow Egypt to open a humanitarian corridor to Gaza um, which still hasn't officially opened I acknowledge as of recording because Egypt has resisted third-party inspections on goods uh, but you know that's at least showing some progress and I think there's also some recognition among Israel's Western partners that it's now got to temper, you know, its full-throated support for calls to, uh, with calls to minimize civilian suffering, right? And sort of, we saw that with Biden urging Israel not to make the same mistakes as the U.S. did in after 9/11. And I think you had written a really fantastic LinkedIn post about this, um, Ethan. So maybe he took some, you know, inspiration from that. But truly, it was to show, show that the emotional suffering and the emotional hijacking of um, the, the the grief and the trauma from the events. It really meant that people were in the, the fog of war after the events happened. And so I think there was a real caution, cautionary tale, I suppose, that Biden was trying to show Israel to, in order to sort of minimize civilian suffering in, in Gaza. Yeah. And let's let's play a clip from from that speech. You can't look at what has happened here to your mothers, your fathers, your grandparents, sons, daughters, children, even babies and not scream out for justice. Justice must be done. But I caution this while you feel that rage. Don't be consumed by it. After 9-11, we were enraged in the United States. While we sought justice and got justice, we also made mistakes. I'm the first U.S. president to visit Israel in time of war. I've made wartime decisions. I know the choices are never clear or easy for the leadership. There's always cost, but it requires being deliberate requires asking very hard questions. It requires clarity about the objectives and an honest assessment about whether the path you're on will achieve those objectives. Okay, so two questions from here. First of all, what happens next? Big question. And the second question, if, if you can get to it, is are the Israelis in a position right now where they're able to listen to President Biden's mm. advice on this, on this piece? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great, great questions as usual, Ethan. I think, look, what next is two things. One is diplomacy and then two is deterrence, right? So I think they will remain the top priorities for the US and I think other Western allies who are trying to, I think, have an input on this in, in this conflict. Um, on the diplomacy front, I think before Biden's trip, the Secretary of State Blinken had made 10 stops around the region in just five days, um, even though the trip was, I think, originally meant to be about two days. Um, yeah. And European leaders had also been visiting Israel with the same exact message, which is that 
we're here with you, but don't cross a line, right? Um, Western leaders know that as Israel's response grows, potentially into a ground invasion, as we talked about, containing the fallout of this will be a lot harder. So I think, you know, that's why it leads to my second point. They're also using deterrence. So we've seen large and growing US and I think UK military presence in the Eastern Mediterranean. And the U.S. has now um, apparently warned Hezbollah in Lebanon that if they join the fight, then the U.S. will too. So that's a that's a pretty strong signal to uh, in terms of deterrence. Yeah, but okay. So on that on that second question, I mean, are we are we at the point where uh, some of those difficult questions about? I mean, one the big question that Biden said that he asked Netanyahu during their meeting is, okay, you're planning to take out Hamas. What happens the next day? And apparently, according to reports, Netanyahu didn't have a good answer. He essentially said, we'll get to that when we get to it. Um, So does it seem like we're in a position where good policy can be made? I mean, no, is a short answer, right? I think, as I mentioned to you, I heard from a speaker a couple of weeks ago who was a former hostage negotiator for Israel. And this person actually flagged this concept, and he's a psychologist by training as well, this concept of emotional hijacking, which I had sort of flagged in our discussion. Um, And that is what's happening on both sides right now. People are very much uh, traumatized by what's happened and very much still in that process of grief that um, either sort of fuels them or uh, drives them to sort of not be able to necessarily um, act with long-term vision, right? And I I know I'm saying this in a very cold and very rational way, but I think when you're looking at things objectively, and this is the hard part about the geopolitical analysis that we're doing, because it is such a tragic, tragic and horrific set of events that have happened with long-term impacts. But I think right now that is where all the parties are, right? At that emotional hijacking stage where they're not really able to and perhaps not willing to think in the longer term of what might happen next. And that's where I think is really dangerous and really, I think, uh, difficult for other parties, whether it's the Arab states that lean in or whether it's the US and other forces to try and convince Israel to sort of temper their um, their retaliatory strikes and try and sort of push the Palestinian Authority and other Arab states to come to the table. Um, it's going to be really hard. And frankly, I don't think Israel wants to occupy Gaza. I really don't think that they want to be there for the long term, but they don't see any creative solutions to that right now. So I think it's a, it's, yeah, it's going to be here for a long time. Yeah, I think it, you, you could see the uh, the Biden visit, the Blinken visits, uh, man, a lot of, lot of airline miles for, for the Secretary of State. Uh, you could see those visits in the context of essentially just buying time. Uh, you know, bringing the temperature down in the region, Israel would not launch a ground invasion while President Biden was in Israel. They probably wouldn't do it while uh, Secretary Blinken was in the region either. Uh, So giving the Israelis time to to think about what their next steps are. I've been thinking about, uh, I've been struck by this conundrum. I mean, this is one of the most difficult foreign policy uh, moments that at, at least I haven't lived very long, but in my lifetime, certainly. <laughs> Even in my lifetime, yeah. Ethan, can you believe it? <laughs> no way, no chance. But I, I can't stop thinking about this this uh, this conundrum, this um, this position that Israel's in, where they essentially have no choice. At least they, mm. they, they have a they see it as their political prerogative, at the very least, and, and it may be good security policy to remove Hamas from power. Right. Fine. That could be the case. The problem is 
whatever you do to take Hamas out of Gaza will make the entire situation worse. That's th- those are that's how I'm feeling right now. Those are my personal reflections. Uh, that it's the ultimate rock and a hard place. I don't know how you're feeling. Right. Well, I mean, I totally agree with you. I think even as I was um, finishing up my posting in Israel, I think there were the military analysts were pushing out even back then that there are a lot of more radical groups that have gained ascendancy in the Gaza Strip because they see Hamas as like being institutionalized and a little bit stale. And so I have no doubt that, you know, once they, the Israelis, or if they remove um, also called neutralize Hamas as a threat, that there will be others that fill its void. Right. And so in some ways, I don't know. I think that will probably see a more radical alternative to Hamas. Um, and certainly you can't see, I mean, it's just not viable for the Palestinian Authority, even if you wanted them to have power in Gaza, you can't have them ride on the backs of Israeli tanks right. into Gaza. How is that going to be taken optically and also politically? Um, there's no way that the Gazan Palestinians would accept that. So look, I really don't know what's going to happen in terms of long-term solution in the Palestine um, in, in Gaza and uh, and then also what happens then in the West Bank, right? Because I think this is one thing that um, maybe we haven't looked at as much, which is the destabilizing of um, all the sort of uprisings that may happen in the West Bank as well. Yeah. I mean, you said it earlier, calls for President Abbas's removal during protests over the hospital explosion earlier this week. Uh, I think, yeah. Helen, you, you hit the nail on the head when you said, I don't know. Because guess what? I don't either. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and yeah. I don't I don't think we'll know much better. It's trade craft right there, Ethan. That's the best of yeah, the best trade craft for you. Um, <laughs> that's how you diplomat. Um, look, I, I don't know. I think I, for me, in addition to saying I don't know, I think is I've been very concerned on a personal level of the, the level of vitriol that we have seen, of course, from, from both sort of people supporting the Palestinian cause and folks who are um, supporting Israel and saying Israel has the right to defend itself. I think what my best solution is just to stay off social media and to best not lean into it <laughs> or at least wait into the uh, the comment section because it is rather disturbing and we just hope that everyone can look after the mental health because it's a very, very tough time. Stay off social media, sign up for Intrigue. Correct, sign up for Intrigue, yes. that's right. <laughs> Make the world a better place. Thanks, Helen. Thanks, Ethan. Today's episode is brought to you by Rise. If you miss your chance to invest in a ring or in a nest, it's not too late to cash in on the next groundbreaking smart home innovation. It's called Rise. Their automated window shade tech has all the same features as their competitors, but sell at just a fraction of the price. And once they launch at Best Buy stores in a few weeks, they're poised to dominate the fast-growing smart shades market. So take part in this exclusive public offering by clicking the link in the show notes. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, if you need some comic relief in these times, I know we all do, be sure to head over to the International Intrigue newsletter where we're honoring the distinguished career of former British Prime Minister Liz Truss. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Tuesday. Tuesday.